Well, since we seem to be doing this every week, that's the thing. We have six whole minutes to just chat. To just chat. And it looks like we have seven participants here. Uh, we're like the early birds. The, um, the feedback on these has been really cool. Great. Right? Yeah. I, I think it's been good. I've been getting a lot of questions on social media and emailed and stuff. So I think, I think the flow that we have is, uh, is working. I think so. It's like, um, I just, I'm, I, I'm happy because I just float down the stream that you create. So. <laughs> <laughs> I like creating the stream. Yeah. It's funny. I think it's great too, because it's Wednesday and it's right in the middle of the week. And I've had a couple clinical days under my belt and it seems like the universe has given me um, topics. By the time I come home from work, I work in the clinic Wednesday mornings, I come home at lunch. I'm like, I have this like huge list of all the things that I want to talk about. And then I look at the questions and I'm like, oh, and there's the topic du jour. It always, it always shows up. It always shows up. You say that in the resonance effect, don't you? What you need always shows up. It just doesn't always look like what you thought it was going to look like. So how do you recognize it then? Well, you proceed through it because you have to, right? So um, consider some of the things that happen that look and feel really uncomfortable at the time. And then five years later, you think, oh, that was the best thing that ever happened to me, right? Yeah. If it hadn't been for that, what looked like bad thing, then I wouldn't have made this leap or wouldn't have been forced to grow in this way. Right. it's kind of the same, I don't say it the same way to patients, but it's kind of the same thing you do with chronically ill patients or pa- chronic pain patients. Yeah. So they go through, it's kind of like the stages of grief, but maybe we should describe it as the stages of recovery, emotional. Yeah. Of, part of the stages of healing, right? And we kind of talked about this last week when you have patients that see you after and they're angry. And yeah. So first you can, relieved, and yeah. then they get angry, and then and there's grief. So there's anger and grief for what they lost, anger at the guys that couldn't fix them. But before yeah. that comes the, oh, goody, I'm pain-free. I think that's a good thing, maybe. And then, right, so it's the same thing for each of us. So your office manager embezzles $30,000 out of your practice or out of your business, and you finally catch her and that makes you put in business security measures that nobody told you you needed six years ago when you started Mm -hmm. and then you see where the holes are and you go oh well okay lesson learned i wish it hadn't been so expensive but okay i learned it you put the business small business security measures in place and then you hire smarter and you learn to listen to your instincts and pay attention to the numbers 
So when you have a clinic where you have employees, I'd rather just treat patients. And that's what I did. I treated the patients and I left the business end of it to somebody else. And that somebody else made off with about $30,000. And it's like, okay then, right. I know you don't feel like it when you get home, but you have to compare the charge slips to the deposits. And you have to do that, if not every day, once a week. And you, right. So what you need shows up. It just doesn't always, it's not always convenient. <laughs> right. That's a great segue to start our, our podcast, which is officially starting right now. now. There you go. So hello, everybody. Welcome. Um, Kevin just wrote here. If you have any questions, please, if you're joining us live, add it into the Q&A tool here at Zoom so we can see it live. Thank you to everybody who's been sending in um, questions and topic um, ideas and all the things. So this is my favorite. This is my favorite hour of the week. It's turning out to be. I know. And and it's making Wednesday, like a more important day of the week, right? It's more than just hump day. I've, it's so funny. I was touching on this podcast previous when I first took the core, um, this was back through DVD um, time, 12, 13, 14, whatever years ago, um, I would put my babies down for a nap and I'd get a cup of coffee or a tea. And I used to have it in my head. Okay. It's coffee with Carol time. And so <laughs> I'm resurrecting it. Those of you who can't see us, I have my famous cup of coffee and um, yeah, I look forward to, to this as well. And this I have my-, my walk on water, water bottle. You have your walk on water. So it's funny since this is show and tell, um, I have my famous mug that I got from the first core. It has a crack in it. It didn't survive my move from Canada. So now it's my pen cup at my desk. So um, it's still my cup. O inspiration is what I um, call it. (laughs) So jumping right into um, some, some questions and some comments and some stuff. um, One of the most common questions I get teaching the core class and I hear it at the advanced and when I help you at the core is, and I see it sometimes on the Facebook message um, group talking about meniscus and labrums. Oh, well. I know. And I, I didn't, I, I still am not sure like why it's so confusing or what the frequency is for it or how long do we run it and where do we add it? But because I literally got it four different times this week, um, I feel like um, if we could just chat briefly about meniscus and labrums. Um, so the first thing you need to know about the meniscus and the labrum is sometimes you can't fix it with FSM. That's the, that's the place to start from. It's not a reason not to treat it, but so the meniscus, I think the frequency is 214. And that one, as long as the knee doesn't catch, as long as the meniscus isn't flapped over and there isn't a a piece that either breaks off or catches. I've lived with a torn meniscus since, well, for 21 years, since 2000. Did cross country skiing, stepped up two feet and just crushed it and just put a tear in the medial meniscus. 
offered surgery, said, no, thanks. And didn't bother me until maybe two, three years ago. Right. And I just treated, there's a protocol in my custom care called Carol's Knee. Right. And it has 124 torn and broken in 214, the meniscus that runs maybe 30 minutes. And when my knees drive me totally crazy then, or knee, then I run that. Right. So with the patient, you'd have the patient do the normal things that you do to stabilize the knee, quad sets, balancing the hip, the ankle, all of that to make sure that the meniscus is stable. And then you treat it. And usually the meniscus is fairly straightforward as long as there's not a fragment. Once there's a fragment, it's like, I'll treat you after surgery. Right. So that part's easy. The labrum, especially the labrum in the hip, eh, really, and the shoulder. Yeah. In the hip, it's really difficult because the labrum, the way the anatomy, if you, those of you that have netters sitting next to you, you look at the anatomy, the labrum is like a sort of a cup and the femoral head sits in it, right? All right. So if the labrum tear is almost anywhere, the place that it tears tends to fold over and get caught by the femoral head. And I had a labrum tear on my right hip before I had my hip replaced. And it would, it would catch without any notice. And like, literally I couldn't take a step. There's, there's, there's just no way. Right. Treated it with FSM, the labrum isn't really a meniscus. It's a different kind of tissue. It's not cartilage. It's a really dense kind of connective tissue. So you could, I think you could use 77 for the, for the labrum mm -hmm. and don't get your hopes up. Mm -hmm. Hips are almost impossible. My experience, mm -hmm. shoulders, maybe, but we're talking 50, 50. What do you mm -hmm. think? Shoulder um, pairs. So going back to meniscus and kind of going back to what you were saying, the meniscus doesn't get torn from space. Exactly. So again, going back to why is it torn? That's the first thing I think of, unless there was some sort of, you know, major impact. I'm always thinking there was, could there have been tracking issues? So with my triathletes that have blown out labrums and menisci, um, it's an overuse injury. And a lot of times there is some sort of musculoskeletal imbalance that we're chasing back up the chain. So I do use one, uh, 214 for meniscus. I also use 157 for the joint surface and for the cartilage. Like, again, it's not just, you know, a one and done. And I think that might be the theme for today is. And 100 for the ligament exactly. because you've got the, the MCL and the ACL and they, they have to keep the knees stable so that the meniscus doesn't slide around too much. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's the neighboring tissues. It's also the joint capsule. So if something gets sloppy, the capsule is going to be impacted at the same time. It creates um, uh, pressure changes within the joint surface. So 
214, 157, 77, like, yes, of course. But again, I think it's important to remember um, when you have something like a labrum or a meniscus, you should be thinking again, okay, I've got my B channel, but what's wrong with it? Most often it is 124 that you're going, like, the meniscus is not inflamed, right? So people, I always see, I ran 40. I'm like, well, no, it's not inflamed. It's torn. It's broken. Yeah. It's like that, this, this one's pretty clear. <laughs> and it's the so. same thing with the ligaments, the inflammation. It, it's like Achilles tendonitis. Exactly. I treated my Achilles tendon for a month. Right. Well, for nine months, 10 months for inflammation. And it didn't do a thing. And that's because the fact of being torn and broken causes that tissue to express the genes to release substance P and cytokines. And I think it's CGRP anyway, the inflammatory peptides, but the peptides are there. The inflammation is there because it's torn and broken. So treating right. for inflammation doesn't do anything. You have to treat torn and broken. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So along going, following the breadcrumbs that I'm going to to lay out for you. When we talk about how long do we run something? So yes, we talk about, you know, um, 124 is time dependent all the time. Um, oh, and this is going to segue very nicely into the next little comment that I jotted down. Um, how can we only run it for a couple minutes at a time and then they're out of pain? So yes. So I'll okay. start, you finish. <laughs> This is kind of our, our theme here. Um, if somebody has pain because something is torn and broken, that pain will reduce instantaneously. So within a minute or two, they'll be like, ah, it feels better. But wait, you're not done. In order for the healing component, it's, you know, 124 is twofold. You get them out of pain in a minute or two, yes, but you need to run it for a longer period of time to help the healing process. Now to actually repair the thing. And yeah. I've asked two different biophysicists, somebody, well, three, if you can't die on a cross, somebody tell me why, how 124 and 77 can fix Ehlers-Danlos for an entire week. This is a genetic condition where the connective tissue is torn and broken constantly it's made wrong right how is it possible that 124 and 77 normalizes range of motion in 60 minutes and it lasts for a week in a genetic condition i still can't get my head around that yeah when you say that out loud it's um I, yeah how do we do that how, how did how does that happen so we know we think that the frequencies change cell signaling and that changes the genetic expression of the of what the cell does so i that's the mechanism but how do you do that when the gene isn't even there right how do you even how, so we're gonna have to leave that one on the shelf with things we don't understand but yeah. the pain goes down in five minutes but in order to actually repair the tendons, it takes 60 minutes and maybe 60 minutes more than once. So it may 
right? That's why twice a week or three times a week for two weeks or one week and then spread it out because the tears, the tendinopathies or the ligament strains or the lax ligaments, the lax connective tissue will create compensations. And I don't know about you, but I never treat the same thing twice. No, it's, you know, this is, I love how organic these topics just seem to like evolve with us. Me too. Because one of the, one of the comments I, um, I had on Instagram was if you are able to cure and that was in quotes and fix, and that was in quotes conditions with FSM, why would they ever come back for a second appointment, let alone buy a device? Oh, okay. So there's a reason that every single topic has a stable state slide at the end. There's a reason that we start with, like in the very beginning in the introduction, the concept of creating a stable state. Yeah. And they come back for the second appointment when you fix X, whatever that is, on the first session. And then the compensations hit them the next day. So the, the, I think three seminars in a row, Kevin was my supine cervical patient. He always was digging at his neck and digging at the, the spots in his arm and his chest that hurt. And so I did the supine cervical practicum. He left, neck was pain-free. The next day he was worse. It's like, hmm. So the second time, I treated the dura more and the next day, and he felt great that night. Next day, he was worse. The third time I did a more thorough physical exam. And every time I don't do a thorough physical exam, it comes back to bite me. So it's one of those things I'm gonna have tattooed on my back of my hand, do the exam. Um, so I did a sensory exam and he's always digging at his collarbone, not because it was the scalenes, which I thought was coming from the disc in his neck. No, it's because T1, 2, 3, 4 were all hyperesthetic. The pain that he dug at in the back of his neck, upper back, that I thought was from the disc in his neck. No thoracic nerves. Okay, so the third time I treated him, I treated him with four machines, one neck to chest on basically supine cervical practicum. So that was manual. Mm -hmm. One neck to chest treating subacute disc, one from the spine laying lengthwise down the spine down the front treating the nerve and the disc and the thoracic spine because mm -hmm. thoracic nerve pain doesn't come from space, right? comes from a disc. And then I think we finished up with torn and broken in the ligaments in his neck when you look at his, looked at his accident history. And that one, I think, held, right? It has never gone back to what it was before. Right. So there's always going to be something you miss the first time. Right. And I've had 
two patients out of however many hundreds or thousands, I've had two patients with fibromyalgia that were fixed, like 1410, the pain never came back. They both came back the second time to say thank you. It's like, I didn't come back last week because I was waiting for the pain to come back. I came back Mm. just to say thank you. That's two. Right. So, and then there's the stable state. And when with all of the musculoskeletal stuff, I got that right, didn't I? (laughs) Skeletal, yes. Skeletal stuff that you do you have even more attention to the chain where you're working on someone's hip and they say they can feel that in the right shoulder. Yeah. And if you know about fascial trains, it's like, well, of course you can. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I read that question a couple of times and um, I kept, my brain kept going in different circles of how I wanted to answer it. And I mean, you, I think summarized the two, um, sides of that question. So perfectly one is because you missed something or it just didn't present. It's not that maybe you missed something clinically. It just didn't present itself, um, in the way. And I think a big part of it, and this might be the theme of today is, and we kind of touched on that last time about, um, how, how, how has your practice changed using FSM so much? We create change so fast and it is even after all these years, I'll have a patient and they leave. And I'm like, how did that just happen in an hour and a half? How did we just do that? So I think part of the, um, there's many notices we need to give clinicians when they take a class is what you are about to enter. You need to have uh, your seatbelt on, your earbags <laughs> checked. Um, you need, you know, the panic button, you, you need, you need all the things because you're, I don't think we prepare people enough for how fast the changes can occur. And you need to be, um, you know, thinking you, steps ahead. How can you prepare them in a course seminar for what's going to happen? There was the one practitioner who emailed me and said, you prepared me for my failures you didn't prepare me for the miracles. Right. Right. And I just, I did a podcast the other day with a a nurses group and we were talking about, think about the 40 and 10 patients. So just the fibromyalgia or even nerve pain patients, somebody like Kevin that's, or anybody that's had nerve pain for six, seven years. it becomes part of what they deal with in their life. You know, I have a size eight shoe. I have brown hair, blue eyes. My teeth look like this. Um, I got a little mole here and my arm hurts. It's all one sentence. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden the arm pain goes away. Not all, well, yeah, it's all of a sudden because it's so easy, right? So it's an hour and maybe it's even gone in a week. So let's say it takes three sessions to treat the disc and the nerve. The nerve pain will be gone on an hour. That's easy. Then to get the disc repaired. Okay, so it takes a week. But it doesn't just change the pain. 
it changes who they are. How they're, we create an identity crisis this, that is unparalleled in medicine. If you have surgery for something, well, the, you're worse for three weeks and then you recover slowly and then you do rehab and then it's better, but it takes eight to 10 weeks. And by that time, your brain has had a chance to get used to it. Right. With FSM, so that's where afraid to move it um, and 1489 to just quiet down the part of the brain that minds it mm -hmm. and then increase secretions in the cerebellum so -hmm. the brain knows what to do with it yeah absolutely my my whole practice shifted um five years ago because I, instead of just fixing range of motion and sending them on their way they're like, but I can move my arm again. I, I have full range of motion. I'm like, You're, you you don't actually, this will not stay. We need to catch your nervous system up because it has no idea what we just did. And you're totally right. Like there's, there's a process when in traditional medicine and with surgery of psychologically proprioception, there's a process that you go through as you go through your recovery. And when we go from it's not even zero to 60. It's like teleportation, how fast it goes as far as the nervous system. So um, for those of you who are practitioners out there, and when you create massive change on the table, and then your patient gets up and they don't know how to stand or sit, you can see it in their face walk. instantaneously, walk, run. Those of you who work with athletes, um, you have to, I thought just getting them to do, you know, some running and jogging and squats in the clinic was enough. I have now people, you know, with the custom cares taking shots on the ice because they need to be physically um, loaded during the sport that they need to, to catch everything up to complete the loop. So there's a huge, um, it is, it's warp speed, what we do and um, to get everything caught up. So that's why it, there isn't just a one and done. And we talk about, oh yeah, that's, that's easy. And we can do that in one treatment. And that's not really true. We, we need to watch our words, I think. And well, yeah. And even if the patient isn't an athlete, if the patient is absolutely right. The yes, patient anybody. I have started treating people for the mental component of it and the neurologic component of it before they ever get off the table yes so you get rid of the pain you check the sensation sensation is now normal instead of hyper nasty and <laughs> is that yeah that's a word we just made up hyper nasty, so, hyper -nasty. and so then once if you've gotten rid of the nerve pain what does the nervous system have to do to accommodate to that. So in my world, the first thing I do is quiet down the limbic system because the hippocampus, the thalamus, the amygdala, all those, what we have is midbrain parts. They have the emotional and the learning component that minds, that objects to minds the pain that they had it remember the hippocampus remembers so what we have to do is give the hippocampus amnesia 
you just just never mind it the arm pain's gone isn't it it is too it's still there i know it is so you're sitting there having an argument or discussion with the hippocampus yeah and you tell the hippocampus no no it's fine and the hippocampus objects and so you just run 40 and 89 until the patient right will voluntarily move the limb and then once you get the hippocampus quiet, then you can increase secretions in the cerebellum so they, they will be allowed to move it properly. And then the last step that I sometimes forget is to increase secretions in the sensory cortex. Yes. So that there's, now that sensation is normal and not painful, you turn off the midbrain, the part that minds the pain you increase coordination, and then you increase connection, 81 and 92, to the sensory cortex. And then you can, I don't know about you, but then I go back to the cerebellum, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. it's 84, 92, 84. And fortunately for us, we have a tool that appears to let us do that. If anybody listening has access to a spec scan, uh, a functional MRI, an EEG. I want data because we do this clinically. You can see it happening on the table. Mm -hmm. I, I want data. I, I want to know how we're know. actually doing. It looks like we know what we're doing. I know. And, you know, um, that's why we spent an entire day at the sports course just doing this because it is something that you've never done before. You can't believe it. You know, when people are balancing and squatting and moving and the look on their face is just like, <laughs> did I just do this? I just did that. So, um, it's, it's a huge component. I, I think of, uh, all types of recovery, no matter what the condition, how long they've had it. I think as a general rule, the longer you've been restricted, the more important this whole segment is to retrain. Um, you know, as clinicians, we've all had those patients where they've uh, been in pain for 10 years and they come to see you and you get them out of pain and, you know, they love you and they're giving you their firstborn and the keys to their Mercedes and all the things. And then they come back two weeks later and they're like, yeah, it just didn't hold. Well, it didn't hold. well <laughs> yeah. But before this, you know, you were like, darn it, do the same treatment, repeat it, you know, and like, no, they don't need a repeated treatment. You've loosened the condition, you've dissolved the adhesions, you've freed up the limb. What they need is neural retraining. They need those muscles that have been turned off for a decade to not just temporarily fire, which can happen, um, you know, in the clinic. I think you're the really good practitioners are the ones that give the patients the tools um, to create these long-term um, changes. And like I said, you, we go from zero to 60 teleporting. We, we can't expect, you know, everything to fire optimally after one treatment. Well, and there's always compensations and biomechanical dysfunction. Totally. So you can do whatever you want to fix someone's shoulder. So now the impingement's gone, the shoulder pain's gone, and two weeks later it's back because the step I skipped was teaching them to find their lower trapezius right. and their serratus. Right. 
And they said, what do you mean? Well, feel this muscle? Yeah. Pull your, pull your shoulder blades down towards your waist. And they fire their rhomboids and crank their shoulders back. It's like, no, no, it's this muscle. What? There's a muscle there? And you just keep pinching them and working with them until they get it. Because so you have to, especially with the shoulder and the hip, you have to coordinate the, the muscles, the nervous system, the neuroemotional system. And the, there's something else we're going to have to put on the wall. And that is everything is connected to everything. Yes. So if it's the right shoulder, then what's going to be going on with the left hip and the left knee? Right. Right. I hate no. it when Sharky's right, but there you go. <laughs> I love it when Sharky's right. I love it when John Sharky's right. It's so funny. We at the the last, um, was it 2019 that we had him at the advanced yeah. Um, and he had brought somebody up on stage who had, um, some shoulder pathology and, um, he was, uh, compressing the rib cage to create, you know, different line of pull mm -hmm. with the fascia and got her arm to move up. And at lunch, everyone's like, wow, wow, how'd you do that? And they're talking and he says, that was impressive. Right. And I'm like, it's kind of like a party trick. He's like, what? And whoever I was saying next to was just like, I'm like, I don't care what you can do on stage in two minutes. I want to know what her shoulder is going to be. Will she have that range of motion in two weeks from now? And then that caused a big discussion. Busted. <laughs> Me just being the little poop disturber that I like to be from time to time. Yeah, it's good. But, you know, I, I think, like I said, we, we have so many tools at our fingertips. Um, and, you know, we're always talking about thinking laterally. And if we're going to go on that, pathway it's not only laterally we have to start thinking two and three steps ahead of what you normally would be seeing um and some of that depends on the patient and their expectations in some ways 15 years ago it was easier because we weren't all over the internet mm -hmm. and they came in expecting very little and when they got a lot, they were happy and they were willing to come back twice a week for four to six weeks. Mm -hmm. Now, because of what they saw on YouTube or what they read wherever, they come in expecting a one and done for yeah. something like, you know, Ehlers-Danlos. And it's like, uh, no. So it's managing. This is new for me in the last two years. Mm -hmm with the book out and the things that we have on social media and on um, YouTube, they come in expecting a miracle in an hour and a half mm -hmm. and managing that expectation is something new for me. So it's that's, and our practitioners are probably dealing with the same sort of thing. The patient has a condition that's 20 years chronic and when it's not better in two visits, she did the wrong thing. She doesn't know what she's doing. So I get emails and phone calls. Yes. And, no, no, no. It's, it, 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 yes, you've had this 20 years. It's a thing. Yeah. It's still a process. And as good as we are, it's still a process. And I know we've got some, um, probably some people listening now who are just um, patients and not only, um, you know, therapists and practitioners. And so this is a really great message. Like we, we do fix really complicated, hard to fix things, but it's never just um, a one and done. 
So I want to kind of go back to that other part of the question. If we fix and cure people with the air quotes, um, why would they ever come back for another or buy a device? So um, all my athletes buy devices because the trauma is continual. Like it wasn't like it was, they're never going to get um, flexion extension injuries because they, they get flexion extension injuries every single Sunday. Um, so and part of part of it is is just that maintenance and that continual recovery. I, I talk about a patient in um, I think it's in the sports course. Maybe it was in the advanced who um, had her gallbladder out. This was um, one of my early what the hecks um, when I started practicing because I thought she just had hip pain that looked like pseudosciatica. Like this should have been really easy to fix once I balanced her sacrum out, and then. Um, started plunging deeper and deeper into her history. And I knew she had her gallbladder taken out, but I stopped there because what would I have cared if she had her gallbladder out? I felt around for adhesions, things I thought felt good, but then you go further down the history and the little birdie starts talking about how she reacts to any type of metal and it doesn't matter, you know, what it is or long story short, she obviously still has a clip um, in her. And I, with your help, um, was treating her for allergy and metallic toxins. And, um, there was something else that we had done. Oh yeah. I remember calling it like phantom gallbladder pain. I'm like, could there be something? And we treated the small bile duct and I was thinking, got my netters out what's around here. Um, so in this woman's case, again, that, that, um, that state, she has clips or a clip in her body that she's not getting removed. So she bought a custom care. She runs her like gut protocols, metallic toxin protocols once a month. And that keeps the pain away. And she's been pain-free at least eight or nine years now. Mm-hmm. So that would be a reason why, or if you have a condition like Ehlers-Danlos or whatever, um, that's why you would need to have a custom care. I don't actually know how people live without, I, I don't, I don't know. It's, I don't know how our family yeah. Well, them. concussion in Vegas or vagal tone, but I, I sleep the, on every protocol I run on myself at night while I'm asleep. The Vegas is in there somewhere. Right. And one of my patients asked me, what do you treat? How often do you have to treat the Vegas? And it's like, well, how often do you drive on the freeway? Yeah. Oh, how often do you listen to the news? Oh, um, do you ever watch a movie that scares you? Oh, you know, all of the things that create stress turn off the vagus. So what would be wrong with trying to turn it back on every night, right? Right. So yeah, I'm prejudiced mostly because I'm 75 and I have all this medical history that's really kind of scary, but I, I, I do just fine. Thank you very much. Right. And it's like, how do you do that? Can you imagine trying to do that without a custom care that you can use on yourself when you need it? No, I can't imagine it. No. Yeah. I, all my patients get a little splice of Vegas all the time. Just like you said, like, regardless of how great and fluffy their life is, um, they're humans and it's 2021. There there you go. (laughs) Well, and they have pain. So 
the vagus is turned off by infection, stress, and trauma. People don't come to us because everything's rosy and they have no pain and they just want to sit by and visit. Right. Well, if the vagus is turned off by infection, stress, and trauma, you can assume that virtually every patient you see needs to have vagal tone running on them from neck to feet. Yesterday, I saw somebody who had, um, what was her? She had a, her complaint was concussions uh, from um, auto accidents, maybe three or four over a 10 or 15 year period. So the first thing that was interesting was she said, yeah, I have your book, but I haven't read it. Why not? Well, I have a really hard time reading. So I did a vestibular screen on her and she's saccadic on the right, Weber's lateralizes to the right, and she's hyperacoustic on the right. So that was the first clue that, okay, your next, your next step is to go see the optometrist that makes prism glasses. So this is why you can't read. This is why your neck is always out. And so then I started treating her and we did basically the supine cervical practicum, but as part of the exam, I palpate her legs. Now she's fit, right? But her leg tone was hypertonic. It was too, it was too tight. And she said, yeah, I get these tingly sort of buzzy things in the bottom of my, the bottom part of my legs. So I ran 40 and 10 and I ran 81 and 10, two separate machines. So increased secretions in decent, increased descending inhibition in the spinal cord. I swear we're increasing descending GABA. Okay. So her quadriceps started softening up. So it softens up the front and then up the back. And her arms were so tight that her, the skin on her fingers was really dry and stiff. So mm. I had her hands on her tummy, so that went there. So those all softened up. And she had a bunch of visceral complaints that, I mean, somebody said, oh, you've got Lyme. Oh, and she had some mold issues, but her visceral issues were from the discs in her neck. And, and if you've got a disc bulge bad enough to cause loss of descending inhibition, it's, so we ran the vagus and I was doing the supine cervical practicum and the vagus was on my custom care and she's chatting, chatting, chatting. And then all of a sudden she says, oh, what is that? And it was, not, it was the moment that 94 and 109 started. Yeah. Trauma to the vagus. And that whole, the whole time the vagus was running, she couldn't talk. She was just gone yeah and as soon as that finished she woke up and I went oh it's done so I started vagal tone over again right working on her neck so everything's connected to everything it is connected to everything just like our podcast topics I'm just checking here in the Q&A yeah. I think we should answer one of them while we're kind of talking about knees and stuff before we um go any further um so the second um Second question, I'll just read out loud here. Um, can we help a female, 71 years old now, who had a bilateral knee replacement in 2008 
with Smith's Smith nephew joint replacement. They never were able to restore flexion, cannot ride a bike due to the loss of flexion. The first knee, they perform manipulation under anesthesia during second knee surgery, and it is somewhat better. Can we improve on the flexion? Um, Can I take this one? You start. Yes. Um, knee replacements that were done 2008 from, what is that, 13 years ago? The hardware for knee replacements in 2008 um, was less than optimal. Let's just put it that way. The knee is a really complex joint. And because of the curve at the femur, the, at the femoral condyles, and the curve in the tibia, the, the early hardware wasn't designed or wasn't, there weren't enough variables to match the patient's normal curvature. Then if you look at the knee, it's an incredibly complex joint. Mm -hmm. Joint replacement hardware 13, 15, 20 years ago was really pretty primitive. So Dana, the answer is maybe not um, because of the limitation in the hardware. So that's one possibility. The other is torn and broken. Um, we had a patient that I, we treated for two years at New Heights and it was the same problem. She couldn't walk upstairs. Manipulation under anesthesia made it worse. So at least yours got better from manipulation under anesthesia. Uh, flexion, you have to get the hamstrings to fire. And if the cerebellum thinks that there's some reason the hamstrings shouldn't fire, um, that's non-negotiable. The other thing I'd look at is 16. If she is allergic to the metal that they used, and back in 2008, they were all stainless and chromium, uh, I can't remember the number. There's some large percentage of patients that are allergic to stainless steel. So you can try running 16 and nine with the bone marrow. So knee replacements have a spike up into the femur and a right spikes down into the, the tibia. Um, so try running 16 and nine with the periosteum, the bone and the bone marrow and see if that helps and then try torn and broken in the ligaments. You have an idea? Yeah, I'm kind of, well, yes, what you said. I, <laughs> okay, I should just get a t-shirt, what she said. Um, <laughs> yes, what you said. Um, again, I'm going on the, um, like the trainer side of me is saying those hamstrings have been told to not move the knee into flexion. So a big part of it, you know, how in my lenses, why can't a limb move a situation, a something is restricted, preventing the motion or something is weak, preventing the motion. So in this case, I would think there is a weakness to the hamstrings to look at. And that's, that's an easy 
fix. That's a 40, 80, 40, 89, 81 and 92 um, sort of answer. And you could see really quickly when you override the nervous system with what we do and you can get them to fire um, in the clinic, um, that could be. And then, yeah, right away, I, I think about too, if there's a metallic, um, metallic toxins or allergy to the um, hardware, that would also prevent it. Okay. Um, let's do a couple more questions before we, um, I've got one over here about dish. Yeah, I see it. Yeah. Um, have it, either of you ever treated dish? I had dish. I was diagnosed with dish. I didn't have dish, but I'll, I mean, I did on x-rays. I've been running FSM on a client with this condition to remove mineral buildup in the tendons, ligaments, fascia, rolfing. That's good. Um, isn't a lot of in-depth info. Yeah, I don't talk about it. Um, it's, I've treated her for the dura, done rest, restore for a year. Gets more upright after treatment, doesn't hold. Longitudinal ligament, 91. It's been a year, it doesn't hold for more than a week. Well, the fact that it holds for a week is pretty miraculous. You want to explain to people who don't know what DISH is? Oh, Diffuse idiopathic skeletal hyperostosis. So when I first went to chiropractic college, they take x-rays of your neck, thoracic, and lumbar spine. And in the neck and thoracic spine, it's on x-ray, it looks like dripping candle wax. So you have bone spurs on the, um, the ligaments, anterior longitudinal ligament. For me, it, it alternated levels um, on the sides at one level and then front and back on the next level. So I had these dripping candle wax bone spurs or calcifications, right? Right. And then in 2011, when I herniated the two discs and I was trying to avoid surgery, I ran just what you're running, Mary, Mayor, um, 91, 766, 276, 217. I ran all of those in the ligaments and connective tissue. And we did with a resistance band or with a weight and pulley, really small exercises, just like that, to get multifidi and rotatories. The body calcifies what doesn't move. So dish doesn't come from space. Calcifications don't come from space. It's Wolf's Law. If it doesn't move, what is it they say in the Navy? If it moves, salute it. If it doesn't move, paint it. <laughs> in, the, in, FS, in the body, if it, if it moves, yay. If it doesn't move, calcify it. Yeah. So that's when they did the disc replacement surgery on me. They did x-rays of my neck during surgery. And all of the calcifications in my neck were gone. Not just at five, six, six, seven, where the surgery was, but I had dish from C2 to every place you could see, T1. Wow. So the fact that it lasts a week is great. This patient is going to need a custom care to treat herself at home. This is not something that's a one and done, as Kim would say. 
and um, 91, don't forget 217 because it's a kind of ankylosis, which is more what you'd see with dish. It's more like an ankylosis rather than calcification. Mm -hmm. um, and get her to do tiny exercises someplace, somewhere. I think it's in Jody Adams' presentation, the last one she did in 2021, 21. The, the last upper C-spine rehab that Jody Adams did, she nailed it. And you can see the exercises and how they work to get the segmental muscles moving. And that's the only thing I can think of to create a stable state for dish. Have you got yes. something? No, nothing, nothing. Again, I'm all with um, everything. Yeah. So every, like, as everything is connected to everything, everything always needs to move. Um, that's my t-shirt. Um, so so what's t-shirt? Say it again. Everything always needs to move. Like <laughs> we need to move everything all the time. We just need to move. But not um, too much. What's that? But not too much. Uh, that's well, a Ehlers Danlos. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yes. There's there's an exception to every rule, and <laughs> there too. A uh, couple more questions, and then we'll go with our concluding thoughts here. Is there a good treatment protocol for severe EHS? I'm guessing EHS is electromagnetic hypersensitivity? Question mark. I don't know. Do you know another EHS? Uh. I have no idea. Okay. That's the, only, that's the only acronym I know for EHS. That's not like environmental health and safety. <laughs> and it's not, um, uh, what is it? Eosinophilic esophagitis. I had, a, I had a phone call about that. Somebody said I have eosinophilic esophagitis. You mentioned that last it's week. Fascinating. It's like, that's easy. But EHS, yeah, yeah, yeah. Electrohypersensitivity, yeah, you got okay. it. Okay, good. So David Musnick does a really good job with stable state for electrohypersensitivity. One would be concussion in Vegas. That would be one. The other is all of the things like turn off your router at night. It, don't let them put a, one of those meters on your house. That oh, the smart meter? smart meter, don't let him do that. Um, he says, no alarm clocks within 10 feet of your head. And for me, that means, well, I guess I'm, we're not waking up. I guess I'm not waking <laughs> up. And then 954 in, I would guess, at least for me, electrohypersensitivity comes from the vagus, the cortex, and the midbrain, right? right. What do yeah. you think? Um, I agree. I don't have too much mileage with that, but I would, I would defer to what you were saying. Um, yeah, something I don't really see clinically. Um, any frequency recommendation for kiddos with hypotonicity to lower extremities? Why, again, why are they hypotonic? Right. That's Something a good question. Yeah. Ben Catholi should come and be a guest. Okay, let's that Kate remind me to talk about concluding thoughts about guests because I have a whole thing I need to talk to you about. Okay. Um, another uh, question. Or do you want to go with it? Hypotonicity. 
Yeah. What? There's got to be a reason why a child doesn't have tone. So. 81 and 10 reduces tone, except maybe if it increases tone. 81 and 84. Yeah, Manette, uh, the first thing I'd ask is what caused it and what's the official diagnosis? Um, have they biopsied the muscles? Is it some sort of um, muscle? No, no diagnosis. Yeah. Hmm. There's a reason why a child doesn't have tone. Um, that's a good face. No diagnosis referred for motor delay. How I'm not sure how old the child is, but uh, there's more to the story than that. So I'd start with concussion and he's two years old. Find a different doctor. That, that's the first thing. Um, there you go. Candace Elliott was the child of preemie. There's that. Yeah, find a different doctor. That's, that's motor delay is a, what, what I call a BS diagnosis. Um, it's a non-diagnosis diagnosis. So I'd run concussion and the sensory and motor cortex, 92. The other motor centers, I'd go from 92 to 84. So the sensory and motor cortex, the cerebellum and the cord and run, okay, so they did do genetic testing. I was saying my, okay, so my apologies to the doctor that saw him. Um, no genetic thing. I'm assuming they biopsied the muscles if they were looking for difficulties that way. In the FSM world, they'd still start with concussion, sensory motor, sensory cortex, and cerebellum and cord and I've seen children at Cleveland Clinic, pediatric rehab, that have um, strokes in utero. Whoever heard of that, right? But the kid had a stroke in utero. So wow. maybe. Maybe. Sudden hearing loss unilateral be treated with FSM. No, uh, nope. Mm -mm. It said, continuing on, um, friend with this moderate severe hearing loss has not yet received any benefit from oral nor three prednisone injections to her inner ear. Hmm. Okay, um, we're not even going to address why anybody would do a prednisone injection into the inner ear, but that's another conversation. Um, it can be viral, that's, that's his thought. It can be hypersensitivity to, were they taking Advil? Mm. So you can have, so ototoxic, but it's only unilateral. That just, no, nope, outside my skill set. And speaking of outside skill set, um, the next question is any protocols or frequency sets for Stargardt's or other degenerative eye disorders? Let's be careful with the eye folks. Outside my skill set, unless you're Jamie, unless you're an optometrist or an ophthalmologist, um, you send the patient to Lori Chaikin or um, what's his name in Utah? Roger Billica has taken special courses in treating the eye. 
Julie Hartman, but she's just now, would you believe that she, she had a Whipple, she beat pancreatic cancer and she's back in practice full time? I would believe it actually. Yeah, well, it's exactly, <laughs> it's, it's a combination of alternatives. So all the supplements she did, all the FSM she did, and okay, fine, I'll take this chemotherapy, but not that one. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> but, and she did it. So fantastic. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Is it five? Oh, wait, we have six more minutes. We have six more minutes. So um, we are doing so well with this. One of the last but not least questions before I do my concluding thoughts and um, have some great announcements to make here is um, something that I also received twice. People are starting to get their flu shots now um, at the same time as their COVID shots. So for, yep. Wait, wait, wait. Both at the same time? Apparently. Okay. So this is a podcast. People can't always see our facial expressions except for the 37 that are looking at us right now. So maybe it's a good thing. Um, do we have recommendations for support for people um, who are getting um, their COVID shots or their flu shots, preferably not on the same time? Think. So are you having people run like immune support um, on their custom cares? What, what's your um, FSM custom care support for people who are getting their shots right now? Because I know for sure that I'm allergic to polyethylene glycol, which is in the Pfizer and Moderna. I knew for yeah. sure I couldn't get those two. Yeah. And because I travel, I got the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Um, I, because of the history of blood clots with all of them, mm -hmm. I took baby aspirin that morning. Heparin doesn't work, aspirin does. So I took a baby aspirin the morning, had the vaccine, just, just the COVID, just the J&J. &J. And then uh, my, about four hours later, my skin got sore the way it does when you have the flu. And it's like, yay, my immune system recognized it. I took mm -hmm. a six hour nap. And I ran the, the, our, our COVID protocol, the flu, we call, what do we call it? Flu respiratory plus right. organs, yes. right? Because the, and I ran that, that afternoon and I ran it maybe twice during the night. The next day I took another baby aspirin, ran the flu respiratory plus organs plus brain protocol the next day. And that's it. And I had no side effects. Immune support, I don't know that I do that because you want your immune system to react, but not overreact. Right. Um, the, the concept of having both of them, a regular flu shot and the COVID vaccine on the same day is an interesting concept from an immunology standpoint. Um, I won't get a regular flu shot just because of all the cases of the Guillain-Barre that I've seen that follow just the regular flu shot. Mm -hmm. um, but J&J or the COVID vaccine because of the travel and gathering restrictions. So when we go to San Francisco in December for the practicum weekend, people, because of the state regulations, any group gatherings, you either have to be vaccinated, they won't even take testing. So you can't have a negative test. You have to have a vaccine passport 
when you go in a, any sort of group in San Francisco. So when we start traveling, that's just the way that goes. If you're not going to travel, then you can modify what you do. But that would be, that was my solution. Yeah, here in California, my kids can't go into the rink to play hockey without their vaccine passport. So kind of where we're at. Um, the question was really quick that just came up. Can you explain um, explain flu, respiratory, and organs protocol? That is on the custom care software now. Right. And it's we, you can't call anything COVID. So it's, it is a unique respiratory flu. And it's every frequency we have for every flu virus. I yes. think six of them plus 160, or maybe it's six total. And we run that with just 00, zero 0.1. And then we run it with the organs that are affected by those viruses. That would be the arteries, the capillaries, the kidneys, the liver, um, the heart and the brain. So those were the, the organs that were most affected because that's where the ACE2 receptor is most widely distributed is in the blood supply and the, then the really well vascularized organs like the kidney, the liver, the heart, the lungs, and the brain. So that's, that's why that protocol runs, I think it's two, two and a half hours, which is why I run it at night. Right. Yeah. Um, the next question here, and this is a great segue to my little announcements. Do we need the COVID vaccine for the Arizona seminar? I'm guessing she's asking for the advanced. Yeah. Um, it's that's going to any restrictions. Pardon? I don't think Arizona has any restrictions. Yeah, that's actually going to depend on Arizona. Right. Um, we aren't requiring them. It. I don't know what the restrictions are gonna be as far as wearing masks. Um, what, what we're going to do is the ballroom holds 300 people. And instead of having the chairs three feet apart, we'll have them six feet apart. So there's just common sense to put on a meeting and an in-person meeting. You really don't wanna turn it into a super spreader event. Right. So we'll, we'll restrict or hope, let's say we hope for 100 people to be there in person in a room that normally holds 300 and it's going to be live streamed. So right. if you're worried about being in a group, because we everybody falls into two groups, ones that are really worried about getting COVID and ones that aren't. So <laughs> we'll, we're having it live streamed and uh, some of the presentations will be um, video or virtual, and some of them will be in person. And if you come in person, then we're still going to do what we can. The hotel has, like the the buffets are all behind plastic, and and you're safe. The food service is safe. Um, and then we just hope for the best. Yes. Oh, I know. You know what we can do. You what? know how we usually run concussion and brain fog and emotional relax and balance. Yes. So we'll run immune support. Yes. Respiratory flu. Yes. And concussion. I love it. We are so prepared for this. <laughs> Going along this um, theme really quick with the advanced, 
Um, I've had a couple people that wanted to take the sports course and then the sports advanced course right after. That will be a lot of information for people. So I'm doing it on a case-by-case -case basis. If you have the um, professional background to take in all this information and have taken some FSM stuff in the past, we'll grant you permission to overload your um, nervous system for three days. Um, because yeah, we want everybody when they come down to take as many stuff as they can without losing their minds. So um, you can reach out to Kevin or to myself. And um, if you have any questions about that, we'll do it on a case by case basis. The next announcement that we have for the podcast is while we have so much fun talking just the two of us and answering your questions, we're going to start bringing some people on um, as um, like co-interviewees. So if you have any ideas, like I said, topics or people that we should interview, I think what, and I'm kind of springing this on you right now. Um, I think what, <laughs> we already thought about this, right? Yeah, you know. So I think what, because we're kind of taking two tracks, I think you can maybe think of, you know, we talked about Ben Catholi and Dr. Musnick and some people maybe on the functional medicine side. I'd like to take some of the um, professional and elite athletes that I've worked with and maybe bring them on um, to hear their experiences using FSM and maybe some of the other, you know, trainers and PTs that um, we've worked with. So Mark Lindsay to come on. I've texted him already um, just the other day. I will let you know when I hear back, but I'm thinking all along those lines of those, um, those folks who I've have been using therapists than, than patients, although the patients are, are interesting too. And just because we have our podcast open to the public and I know a lot of patients are listening. So it might be nice to once in a while hear from a patient who's had some, and maybe not athletes, maybe just even some chronic pain patients just yeah. to have it quickly, you know, athletes, athletes are good too, because we know what we know it from our perspective. It's really interesting to hear it from a patient's perspective. So I think that's a great idea. Thank you. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm looking forward to that part because there are going to be, there are a couple of these podcasts, some of them where I'm just going to be out of the country and yeah. you're going to be on your own with a guest and vice versa. Yes. Right. So yes. maybe we can organize, organize yeah. our guests that way. I have a list of 15 I made today of people I'd like to bring on. Of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> off the top of my head and I've I've texted and emailed a couple of them so yeah we can compile a list and again um, back to anybody if there is a topic that you want us to cover you can email um, that to kim at fsmsports365.com or contact at frequencyspecific.com and we'll compile all these questions and topics and get everything um, ready and organized the best that we can so thanks to everybody who joined us live this was fun as always as always it's as always like my favorite wednesday hour this Yay. is good. coffee with kim and carol we need a name <laughs> okay well well that's a good start i like that it's my name anyways that's my wednesday that's what's on my calendar yeah all right everybody thank Stay you very much there. it's okay. great to talk to you talk See to you, you next week See bye everybody Bye. The Frequency Specific Microcurrent Podcast has been produced by Frequency Specific Seminars for entertainment, educational, and information purposes only. The information and opinion provided in the podcast are not medical advice, 
do not create any type of doctor-patient relationship, and unless expressly stated, do not reflect the opinions of its affiliates, subsidiaries, or sponsors, or the hosts, or any of the podcast guests or affiliated professional organizations. No person should act or refrain from acting on the basis of the content provided in any podcast without first seeking appropriate medical advice and counseling. No information provided in any podcast should be used as a substitute for personalized medical advice and counseling. FSS expressly disclaims any and all liability relating to any actions taken or not taken based on or any contents of this podcast.